turn to the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 9. I'll be reading Isaiah 9 verses 1 through 7. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they're glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood, will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth. And forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Blessed is the reading of God's holy prophecy through his servant, Isaiah, to our hearts, to our souls, and to the eternal salvation of all of us. Who are in this child. Holy Father. Oh let us revel. Let us revel in. This old. Foretelling. Revel. In his fulfillment. And revel. In its application. To us here. Who believe. To the glory of him. Your son, the child given, Jesus. Amen. So this morning, we're not going to go back to 4 BC where the angel visited Mary or to a stable in Bethlehem. We're going to go way back. 730 years before that. Isaiah the prophet prophesied in his own time, in his own context, something that has relevance for every single one of us in this room. 
Now, if you look down, chapter 9 of Isaiah, verse 1, it comes on the heels of what was just said in chapter 8, where Israel is warned not to seek revelation from any source outside of Yahweh. Not to seek revelation in particular by consulting with the dead through mediums and necromancers. But the only safe place to get true light was in the teaching of Yahweh. Through Moses, previous prophets, in the Scripture. But now, in chapter 9, Yahweh is about to add to what was already revealed. And it's a message. It's a message about the difference that a baby, that a child, that a son given will make to this devastated people. He is the great light to see true revelation as Bob just quoted oh when he comes he has spoken to us in the person of his son it's a great light for people walking in darkness so let's begin with verses 1 and 2 of Isaiah 9 but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations, which is the land of Naphtali and Zebulun. How? The people who walked in darkness. He's referring to the future, even though he puts it in the past tense here. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. So, Isaiah begins with a promise of a massive turnaround. A coming out of darkness in this particular geographical area called Zebulun and Naphtali. So you remember the story how Israel invades and conquers the land of Canaan under Joshua. And as they do that, the twelve tribes half-tribe of Manasseh, they're divided up the land geographically for their place. So think about the New Testament for a moment when you see Jerusalem here and you go way up north about 90 miles to the Sea of Galilee. That Sea of Galilee area, north of it and a little bit south of it, a little bit east and all the way to the coast are these two tribes of Zebulun. And Naphtali, that's where they lay. And Isaiah says, there great light will shine. It's where Nazareth was. It's where Capernaum 
is. And these two tribes, 700s B.C., they're very north in Israel, the, all the tribes together, which means they're the first to be invaded by foreign powers. As after this prophecy, very soon after, happened in 733 B.C. We read about it in 2 Kings 15, verse 29. In the days of Pekah, king of Israel, Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, came and captured Ijon, Abobeth Makkah, Genoa, Kadesh, Hazer, Gilead, and Galilee, all the land of Naphtali. And he carried the people captive to Assyria. That's what Isaiah describes before it happened in verse 1. In the former time, he, Yahweh, brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. That was Yahweh's judgment. But in the latter time, he says, it will be turned around. Read on. But in the latter time, he, Yahweh, has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Those two tribes. And so no wonder Matthew quotes these verses as being fulfilled when Jesus went to Capernaum on the Sea of Galilee. We read this in Matthew 4, verses 13 to 16. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, quote, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. For those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Jesus moved to Capernaum. And so this same region Isaiah is referring to, centuries earlier, was plunged into darkness by the Assyrian invasion. That same reason, region was eventually to be the first. To see the great light. As Isaiah prophesied in verse 2 of chapter 9. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them the light shone. And so historically... These northern two tribes in the Galilee area were told that this great light would come to them 
through a child, a child who is to be born, a, a son who is to be given to them. And yet, in Isaiah's own time, these tribes would be invaded and defeated and many of its people deported, carried away out of the land in 730 B.C. And then eight years after that, these two tribes and the rest of the northern tribes were totally wiped out by the Assyrian army. No more kingdom of Israel, only Judah. But Isaiah foretells that there will be an end to the darkness. And God's promises are always guaranteed. He never forgets. They were rebellious. They were sinful, and thus God's judgment came and threw them into darkness. But His promises, Yahweh's promises, remain. Remember how Paul said it in Romans 11, 1? In the context, Israel, rebellious, 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 stiff-necked. And so Paul Ask, has God rejected his people? Answer, by no means. Because Isaiah 9-2 says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shown. And then Isaiah goes on now to describe the praise of Yahweh that will happen through these people in fulfillment of the great light. Starting with verse 3 through verse 5. In verse 3 he says, you, O Yahweh, have multiplied the nations, the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. And so Isaiah paints this picture of the joy that would come when this child is born is given this son to them. It's like the joy of a farmer at harvest time. We got the crop this year. It's like the joy of an army that defeats its enemy and now it's time to divide the spoil. But he says this joy is a joy in the presence of Yahweh himself. See it? Verse 3. You've multiplied the nations. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you. Before you. In your presence. Then verse 4. 
gives the reason for that celebration of joy. That's in verse 3. That's why verse 4 begins with the word for. For, in other words, or because God has set them free from slavery. That's why they rejoice. That's the gist. For the yoke of his burden, the people, and the staff for his shoulder, that's slave language, beats you on the shoulder, the rod beating him of his oppressor, all of that, Yahweh, you have broken as on the day of Midian. So the yoke of the burden, the staff of the shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, all are to conjure up the memory of Israel in slavery, in Egypt, and then Isaiah flips the imagery to the book of Judges, chapter 6, the Gideon story. All of that oppression, you, and he's prophesying in the future when this child comes, you have broken it as on the day of Midian. Which we remember in Judges, the Midianites were continually harassing Israel until God raised up Gideon. And with him, just a few. He didn't want many, just a few men in order to defeat the Midianites so that God would get the glory. Then in verse 5, Isaiah explains that liberation from slavery that's there in verse 4. That's why verse 5 begins with the word for. For... Every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. So the flow of what Isaiah is telling us is that the joy in verse 3, which comes because of the liberation in verse 4, are all possible. Because of God destroying the weapons of the enemy. In verse 5. So in the context, Isaiah is saying that the Messiah, the king, the child to be born, he will bring about the joy of verse 3, which comes from the liberation of verse 4, because the enemy is destroyed in verses 4. And then Isaiah comes to the climax of the prophecy in verses 6 and 7. Notice that verse 6 also begins with the word for. Because it explains everything. It explains the change from darkness to light in verses 1 and 2. It explains the joy of verse 3. It explains the freedom of and the peace that is won by war against the enemy in verses 4 and 5. In other words, all of that, how? 
verse 6. For, or because, to us, a child is born. For, or because to us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. All because a child is born and a son is given. That's what Christmas is all about. Charlie Brown. God's answer to all the evil, to all the oppression, and to the judgment in this world is a child. Whether it's the Assyrians, whether it's the Roman occupation, whether it's ungodly religious structures like the Sanhedrin in the first century, whether it's communist totalitarian regimes, whether it's the great enemy of us all, death, and the greater enemy of us all, our sin. His point is, God is all-powerful to defeat all those enemies by coming as a child born of a woman. Oh, how Paul declared it. God the Father did not spare His own Son, but He delivered Him up for us all. And then Isaiah goes on, to elaborate about this son by telling us about his name. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. First, Wonderful Counselor. Or something like this wooden leaf in the Hebrew. One Wonder Counselor. The word wonder here in English, it implies deity. And what I mean is this. It, the deity in the sense of supernatural. Supernatural Counselor, And why I say that is the gist of the Hebrew word and its root. That's what it's, that's what it's driving at in context. For instance, same word used in Genesis 18, verse 14. And you know the story. Sarah has been barren all her life. She's post-menopause. Okay? And God says, I'm going to do something supernatural. The Lord, or Yahweh, said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for Yahweh? That too hard, 
is the same word. Is anything too wonderful for Yahweh? Too supernatural for Yahweh? Or as Isaiah again uses it together, these both these words in chapter 28 of Isaiah verse 29. This also comes from Yahweh of hosts. Now watch it, he's referring to Yahweh himself. He is wonderful in counsel. It isn't merely finite, non-perfect. It's from outside to us. It's super above nature, creation. So this child, this king, will be one who is supernatural, insightful, accurate always in counsel. Like when he counseled us all when he grew up with words like this. Take up your cross and follow me. Lay down your life to find eternal life. You believe in the Father? Believe also in me. Wonderful, supernatural counselor. That's who this baby is. And the child is also called Mighty God. Meaning something like warrior. Warrior God. Mighty in battle. This same phrase, mighty God, is used in the next chapter of Isaiah. Just flip over to chapter 10. And there it is clearly referring to God. To Yahweh. Verse 20 to 21. In that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them. There, here it is, the freedom of slave masters. No, but will lean on Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel in truth. The remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob to the mighty God. Warrior God. Back in the 1500s, John Calvin nailed the significance of this term in his commentary on Isaiah when he writes, He is therefore called the mighty God for the same reason that he was formerly called Emmanuel, back in Isaiah 7. For if we find in Christ nothing but the flesh and nature of man, our glorying will be foolish and vain, and our hope will rest on an uncertain and insecure foundation. But if he shows himself to be to us God and the mighty God, we may now rely on Him 
with safety. He is wonderful counselor, mighty God. And then he's called the everlasting father. Which is Isaiah's way of communicating a king. A king exercising care and concern on behalf of his people as a father does his children. He, this child, is forever a father, always caring. And this balances out the previous term, the mighty God, the warrior God who comes to fight on behalf of his people and defeat the enemy. But He also speaks of his fatherliness, which says, oh, and he is tender with his people on behalf of whom he fights. He has a deep love for them, an unending love for them, everlasting father. And then... He's called the Prince of Peace. Prince, a warrior of peace, who's going to bring peace. This does not refer to our psychological age. And there's biblical truth to this. Peace. Between me and God and thus an inner peace. He's not referring to the prince of inner peace. He's referring to a prince who's conquering and thus establishing peace. Prince of peace in the midst of this nasty world of enemies. He brings peace by conquering in war. Peace here presupposes victory. This peace comes by violence, force. The prince of peace doesn't mean he's peaceful and milk toast and a pacifist. It means he has the power and the ability to bring about the peace. That we, his people, so need. Can you hear during this Advent season the beauty of who this promised child is? Through the names that are given which depict his character, his nature, his way with his people. All prophesied 700 years earlier in Isaiah 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty Warrior God, Everlasting Father, 
the way he takes care of his children. Warrior, prince of peace. And then Isaiah goes on to describe the child's reign. Verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. So Isaiah is clear that he's referring to the descendant of David. That Yahweh promised David back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, a few hundred years earlier. Isaiah, in this prophecy, has the eschatological kingdom of David's son in mind. In other words, the Messiah. And it's an everlasting kingdom. Many of us today, we mourn, we foresee, we feel like we're experiencing the collapsing of Western civilization before our eyes. But there is no civilization. Old Rome, what grew out of that eventually? Now, none of it will last except the one that this baby came to inaugurate and will bring to completion and consummation at his second So why do we make so much of a baby lying in an animal feeding trough? It's because this conquering king, this mighty God, Yahweh with us, it all starts with Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For to us, a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Everlasting Father. Prince of Peace. And in light of Isaiah 9. 700 years later. The angel announced to a teenaged virgin. That she would bear this child in her womb. And the angel went on to say to Mary. Quote. And here Isaiah 9 in it. He will be great. And will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. 
So if any of us in here who are dying, and that means all of us are dying, if we're looking for real deliverance from bondage, if we're looking for real light out of darkness, if we're looking for clarity of the meaning of this life, if we're looking for mercy toward us as sinners, then it begins by looking to the child lying in an animal feeding bowl in the town of Bethlehem. As Isaiah prophesied 700 years earlier. One last thing, one last line. In the 700s, the collapse of the northern Israel, along with these two tribes, would happen. What Isaiah prophesied sounded just way too good to be true. That's why I think God has him put the last line in there. In verse 7. To point to Yahweh's passion, zeal. Whether you translate it zeal or jealousy, either one is how this works you. It's, it's to point to the very core of what moves God. In fact, the reason God created anything was to send His Son and to glorify His name through the salvation of many brought out of darkness. And so, after this stunning prophecy, he ends it with the zeal of Yahweh, of hosts. Simple words now. Will do. That's why hundreds of years later out of the blue the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary. God's never in a hurry. He's got his perfect timing. But it is all sure. His zeal guarantees he'll keep his promises. And so that child was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of Mary and was born and grew up and said in Mark 10.45, Son, who was given to you, 
the Son of Man prophesied in Daniel came not to be served, but came to serve and conquer all your enemies by giving his life as a ransom for many. And anyone in here can be the many. How? Embrace him. Believe what you have just heard. That Jesus came to put away the sin by taking its punishment upon himself for every person who will ever come to him. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for this season, for December, for Advent, for Christmas, for looking back into history at the greatest historical event, Christ's life, his incarnation, his suffering, his death, and his resurrection. And we thank you for these glorious exclamation points of having that event foretold again and again in different ways and different aspects, hundreds and hundreds of years before it happened. You are good. For the rest of our time this morning, again, together as your people, Cause us in the power, in the joy, a greater joy than a farmer has at harvest or a warrior in victory. Sing and revel in Christ our Savior. Amen.